This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hello, how are you? Welcome to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am Movie Mike on Twitter and Instagram, at Mike Distro. And on this episode, I'm talking all about iconic movie characters who you didn't realize have very little time on screen. Now, these are all very famous movies, and I'm going to break down just exactly how many minutes they appear on screen And I think it will surprise you and you may even feel ripped off that you only had this amount of time with your favorite characters from movies. But there's also a bit of science and theory to it, if you will. So we'll get into that as well. It kind of explains how to make a really great movie. So we'll get into that. I'll also get into how much they are saying they're going to pay Joaquin Phoenix to make a sequel to The Joker. And I just want to break down not who the best Joker was, but just who had the best laughs. So I will break those down, we'll hear the laughs and get into all about the Joker. And then in the movie review this week, I'm talking about the brand new movie on Netflix called The Devil All the Time, which I was very excited to watch, so I'll get into my full review of that. Of course, spoiler free, because that's what I like to do on this podcast. And if at this point you're not subscribed, what are you waiting for? It kind of hurts my feelings if you've been listening for this long and not been subscribed. So wherever you're listening right now, hit that subscribe button, hit that follow button, and make sure you get brand new episodes every single Monday. Without any further ado, let's get started. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. All right, so I want to talk about iconic movie characters with very minimal screen time. And why I thought about this is because I saw a news story about one year where Tom Cruise wasn't the highest paid actor for the year. But he put out Jack Reacher, which made him about $53 million dollars. And that's a movie where he's on screen for about 113 minutes. So that worked out to about $28.1 million per hour. Yeah, if I could make that much an hour, I would only work one hour every year for the rest of my life. But I am not Tom Cruise. I do not have that luxury of being a huge movie star. At minimum, I am a mediocre movie podcaster. But what I did think about is... 
that's a pretty lengthy screen time for him to be on, and that's because that's a big Hollywood movie. If you go watch a movie with Tom Cruise, you want to see him the entire time. That's not necessarily the case when it comes to other movies, because sometimes in certain movies, less is more. When there's some suspense to be created, when there's another story to be told, sometimes showing the thing that it seems the movie is actually about and getting less screen time from that actually adds more to the movie. So what I want to cover here are instances where the main character actually isn't in the entire movie, and it turns out they're in very few of it, and some of these would be kind of surprising to you to think of like, okay, there's been entire fan bases, there's been t-shirts, posters, people have gotten tattoos of these characters, but they haven't even been on screen a whole lot in the history of these movies. So I'll break down some of the famous movies, how long the actual movie is, and how many minutes they actually appear on screen. So first of all, let's start out with the original Jurassic Park and how few minutes the actual dinosaurs were in that movie. So you think Jurassic Park, okay, it has to be an entire movie about the dinosaurs, right? Well, with a runtime of two hours and 17 minutes, the actual dinosaurs are only on screen for 20 minutes. And that is crazy because... You get about six minutes of CGI dinosaurs. So some of those dinosaurs you see are entirely computer generated. And then the other 14 minutes when they're on screen are actual like practical effects. So if you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff of Jurassic Park, they actually created like robotic dinosaurs that are fully functional. And I know you can't see me as I'm doing this when I'm actually like acting out a robotic dinosaur while I'm recording this. But that's how they made those dinosaurs. So at 20 minutes of the dinosaurs, you have about 107 minutes where it's just humans. Now, in this case, it's partially because it's really expensive to make dinosaurs on screen. Not only do they have to create those robotic characters, but if you're doing a bunch of CGI dinosaurs, that's going to quickly add up. And then back in the 90s, of course, you don't really have the same kind of technology we have now. I feel like in the more recent Jurassic Park sequels, you've gotten more dinosaurs. But just crazy to think back watching that original movie that you don't really get a whole lot. A lot of it is anticipation because, you know, even the first time you see the T-Rex, it's like the shaking of the ground. It's the movement. It's the anticipation of them being chased by dinosaurs that almost makes it even more scarier. And then it also kind of builds anticipation to the very end of the movie where it's all a free for all, the final battle. And you get to see them in their full glory. I think if you saw the dinosaurs throughout the entire movie, you really wouldn't care as much. But just crazy to think, one of the biggest movies of the 90s, the main characters are only there for about 20 minutes. Let's talk about The Dark Knight now. I'm going to get into a thing later about the Joker. But I do want to add him into this list because Heath Ledger as the Joker was a very menacing presence on screen. And it almost doesn't even feel like Heath Ledger. It feels like he really embodied the Joker in this kind of way to where you don't even recognize him you just think that joker exists in this world a little bit different than i would say the joaquin phoenix version to where it's a little more noticeable that you're watching joaquin phoenix be the joker because you see his kind of downfall into the character but with this one in the dark knight you're just immediately immersed into the depiction that heath ledger created But this movie is two hours and 32 minutes, but you only get 33 minutes of the Joker. And why is that important? You think such an important, iconic, memorable performance that won him an Oscar after his death. 
But I think it's the fact that he's just kind of sprinkled in there that when Joker is on the screen, you remember every single scene of that movie with him. So he's only in about one-fifth of the movie, but that really makes it a lot more impactful. I think if you got any more Joker in this movie, it would kind of take away from all those important scenes. I just bet that was a very tough thing to do when you're sitting down and editing this movie of like, you want to put him more into this movie, but kind of holding back and just having him develop and sprinkle in throughout, I think is really important to why this movie was so successful. And even on the other side of that, I almost feel like you only see Batman in very kind of sporadic moments too. And it's also really important once he's on screen as Batman and not Bruce Wayne. Let's go back in time a little bit now to the first Star Wars movie, which is Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which happens to be my favorite in the entire Star Wars franchise. This one has a runtime of two hours and five minutes, but Darth Vader, the ultimate villain, is only in it for 12 minutes. Yeah, he's only in about 10% of the entire movie. But I would say he's probably the most famous Star Wars character. I think he's more recognizable than any other one in the franchise. And my relationship with Star Wars is that I watched the new movies way before I watched the old original movies because... I just never watched them growing up, and it wasn't until they came out with The Force Awakens that I saw that one in theaters and was like, okay, I probably need to go back and rewatch all these movies because I've seen them referenced in pretty much everything in pop culture. I just never sat down to watch them. And I was surprised watching them and realizing, isn't Darth Vader in these a little bit more? Anytime you see this movie reference or any kind of clip shown, it probably has something with Darth Vader and just crazy to know they only have 12 minutes to pick from. And then the other Star Wars character who makes my list is one that I, when I rewatch the movies, I'm like, where is this guy going to come in? Because it's one I hear a bunch of people talk about and I'm like, where does he kick in? And it's Boba Fett and he is in episode five and six. So that's two movies he's in. Empire Strikes Back, which has a runtime of two hours and seven minutes, and then Return of the Jedi, which is two hours and 17 minutes. And Boba Fett is only in it for 18 minutes in both of those movies. So you have this character that kind of has like a cult following. I I don't think he's as recognizable as all the other Star Wars characters because I would just kind of see him and I would know it's Boba Fett, but I probably couldn't pick him out of a lineup in the beginning. And I didn't really know what the appeal to him was. Like, They don't really give him a big backstory when you're watching the movie. I wasn't that big of a Star Wars fan then to go and research where he came from in his entire origin. But he looked cool and somehow just had this enduring kind of relationship with fans and people who love Boba Fett. And all of that is just for a mere 18 minutes on screen. That's a powerful 18 minutes. So both of those were pretty surprising to me. Another one that was surprising was Beetlejuice. So this is a movie... The entire thing is named after this character, Beetlejuice, played by Michael Keaton. One of his just most bizarre kind of breakout roles for him. And it's probably Tim Burton's best movie, I would say. It's the most Tim Burton-y movie. And I remember watching this as a kid and thinking it was just so quirky. And I was like, is it supposed to be scary? Is it supposed to be a comedy? And I like that it kind of bridges that gap of just being weird. And like the other movies we've been talking about, you think Beetlejuice would be in a lot more, especially if his name is in the title of the movie. But not only is he only in 17 minutes of the hour and a half, but it takes him 75 minutes to even show up like fully on screen. So this is kind of a case where a character works really well in little bursts. 
Because I think if you go back and watch this movie, it's just so well done. You don't really notice that he's not in the first whole chunk of the movie. Because when he is, it's so just kind of crazy outrageous. You're getting this unique performance. And this kind of misunderstood, odd character that once he's on screen, it really kind of just takes control of the entire movie. And it's the way Michael Keaton is just so kind of goofy, but also like creepy and all like the ad lib stuff he did in this movie. And it's just cool to see how an actual movie character can be in the movie for such a little amount of time. But yet come every single Halloween, you can probably see a Beetlejuice walking down the street. Kind of staying in the horror space. You got Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs. So probably Anthony Hopkins' most iconic role, one that got him an Oscar. And the entire movie is two hours and 18 minutes, and he is only in it for 24. So that's a pretty short amount of time to be on screen and to not only be nominated for an Oscar, but to win an Oscar. And I think he comes in about second of having the least amount of screen time and taking home a Best Actor Oscar. The only person that has him beat is probably somebody you wouldn't know, but his name is Devin Neven. He was in a movie called Separate Tables way back in the day, and he won for Best Actor with only being in the movie for 15 minutes. That's an old black and white movie, but in our lifetime, Anthony Hopkins has been really the only one who's done it. And it's mainly because he's terrifying in this movie. He's creepy, he's weird, he feels like pure evil, and only appears in about 14% of this entire movie. And he did end up playing the character again in later movies, but this was the smallest amount of screen time he got in one. As we go back in time a little bit more to a classic movie of The Wizard of Oz. And again, it falls in the villain here because the Wicked Witch of the West, who I would say has a lot of the most famous lines of this movie aside from Dorothy, even though she's only in it for 12 minutes and the whole movie is an hour and 52 minutes. So The Wizard of Oz is just a movie that's been parodied a bunch over the years and it's a lot to do with the characters in this movie and you think about the movie and you realize it's more about the journey they take on this movie it focuses on the characters more so than it does the villain in this movie but nonetheless margaret thatcher's performance in this has been ranked pretty iconic and even with their my pretty line she's only in it for 12 minutes but it's a character and a role that will probably live on forever all right so now i want to talk about some more monster based movies where I think this kind of makes a little bit more sense. So I've heard interviews with directors like Steven Spielberg who say the key to making a great movie is not giving away the monster in the movie. The whole thing has to lead up to the reveal and the whole anticipation of seeing the monster on screen for the very first time. So there are certain movies that have done this so well and are so memorable, but you realize that you're only getting a little bit of the monster. And I think it adds just so much more to the movie because the whole time you're sitting in your chair wondering, like, oh, what's he going to look like? You know, what's he going to do? How many people is he going to kill? Like, how is he going to first emerge? And then how are they going to take down the monster? And it's all about anticipation. So I really like it when a movie does something like they give you the first opening scene and it's something just so memorable that you maybe just get a glimpse of what's to come. They don't really give a whole lot away early on. But then the whole time it's leading up to... I want to see this thing. But when it's done really well, you're also kind of focused on the characters in the story and how they end up getting to this monster before you even realize it. So let's first talk about Jaws, which probably has on this list the least amount of screen time. The movie is two hours and 10 minutes, and the first shark doesn't even appear until about an hour and 21 minutes in. 
And then throughout the entire movie, Jaws is only on screen for a total of four minutes. That's four minutes, a shark movie, that's all you get. So this movie was directed by Steven Spielberg. And a lot of that had to do with because there was a lot of malfunctioning sharks when they made this movie. So it's basically like this actual giant robotic shark in like a big tank that they build inside of like a movie warehouse that they shot this movie. But they had a lot of problems, so they were kind of pushing it further and further back. So this is really like the first case where this whole theory was developed, and it was kind of on accident because Steven Spielberg was like, okay, we don't have the capability to show this shark, but what we're going to do is create the anticipation with the music and shooting things from like the shark's point of view to where you're creating that tension and that you know feeling that you're actually viewing it from the point of the shark in the movie, but you're not actually seeing it. So it's not till like the end of the movie where they come face to face with the shark. He jumps on the boat, creates that iconic scene, and it makes it just so much more impactful and memorable, even though you feel like you kind of got ripped off by going to see a shark movie and having very little shark action. But this has kind of created the template for a great monster movie. Now, there are more movies that kind of fall in this category. Movies like Alien, which is an hour and 57 minutes, but you only get three minutes and 36 seconds of the actual Alien. And you don't get the first glimpse of the Alien until about an hour into the entire movie. And you don't get the full shot until about an hour and eight minutes in. Same kind of deal here where you have an Alien on the spaceship and you can really only show glimpses of it but it's almost more kind of menacing to know that the alien is lurking around behind every corner but then when it actually appears on screen and rex have it it makes up for it with a body count of about nine people in this one so it really doesn't take a lot of screen time to make a monster scary and that's kind of what's shown with this formula another really great example where i thought this was really well done was a movie in 2008 which was cloverfield which at the time, like the shaky cam kind of found footage was kind of a trendy thing going on. But I think Cloverfield did a really good job of it. And I think it was a kind of an underrated movie. But I think what people had a problem with was the whole lead up to this movie and it coming out in theaters and the promotion they kind of did was, what are these creatures going to look like? So Matt Reeves is the guy who directed this movie. And he cited Alien and Jaws as his kind of inspiration for this movie saying that there's nothing more terrifying than the dread and anticipation of seeing something. And that's really what you get in this movie. The whole time you're wondering what these creatures who are destroying Manhattan are going to look like. And you get very kind of brief glimpses of them in the very beginning when all the destruction is going down. And then almost even less as they're actually like trying to run from it and people are, you know, just dying all around them. So you get the first partial glimpse about 20 minutes into this movie, but you don't get that first full shot until about an hour and four minutes. And the entire movie, they only have three minutes and 26 seconds of screen time. But I remember even before this movie came out, I'm seeing like fan drawings of what they thought the monsters were going to look like and people having like theories about it. I thought that was just so cool. And I know that it was kind of a trend at that time to do these kind of found footage movies, but I think this one did it extremely well. And even to this day, I don't even remember exactly what the monsters look like, but the movie kind of was a roller coaster for that. And it was one that you got a lot of watching in the theaters because you get to see other people react to it. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, you see this even like with Godzilla back in the day. You don't get a whole lot of actual Godzilla in the movie, but it's just that anticipation of seeing him for the first time. Another alien movie was Super 8, which came out in 2011. And this one, you got Steven Spielberg and J.J. Abrams teaming up. 
And for a movie that's an hour and 52 minutes, you only get about 2 minutes and 30 seconds of the actual aliens in this movie. And what J.J. Abrams said about this, he says, You want to see the monster, but at the same time, there's something wonderful about it being withheld or hidden just off camera. And it's kind of that idea of you create the nightmare inside your head. And sometimes in movies, what you don't see is worse than what you do see. And even things with like cliffhangers of wondering how something ends, you know, somebody living or dying at the end of the movie. Sometimes it's the plot line you create in your head that could be even more impactful, which I know could sound of a cheap way to get out of something. But when it comes to monster movies, I just think it really works. And we'll stay in the alien category to a movie that came out in 2002 called Signs. It comes from M. Night Shyamalan. And another one that I felt you get the really full effect watching it in a movie theater. And I think the first time I was really scared while watching a movie in theaters was when I went to go see this. And that first time you get that glimpse of this lanky, creepy looking alien. And it happens about 20 minutes into the movie. You see the news report scene come on and they're like, okay, we're going to show you an alien for the first time on the news. And it's really just an alien walking across an alley. And you see it, and they freeze frame on it. And I remember being so scared that driving home that night, I was like, oh, crap, we're going to see an alien on the way home. Like, that's how much that scene affected me. But the movie is an hour and 47 minutes, and you only get one minute and 50 seconds of actual aliens. And most of that is in the very last scene. And I think it almost worked to the advantage of this movie not to show the aliens, because when they did show them, up close, they almost looked weird and kind of cartoonish to where you almost didn't believe it. <laughs> so I don't have a problem with the aliens not being shown so much. I think it's more so the ending of this movie. But they did create that tension of just showing them a little bit. And then when they do show them, it's a lot more scary. All right, so I'll get off of Monsters for a bit and end it with some animated movies. Now, one of my favorite Disney movies was the original Lion King and aside from Simba and Mufasa, the ones you probably know the most from the movie are Timon and Pumbaa. But what you don't realize is they don't really come into the movie until almost like halfway through when Simba leaves Pride Rock and meets Timon and Pumbaa. Like they're really just in the middle part of the movie and then have kind of one scene at the very end. But yet they're so kind of vital to moving the movie along to get Simba back to Pride Rock, but also kind of being the comic relief in this movie and a movie that's Almost has a plot line of being too dark for a kid's movie. Because if you turn this into a straight drama without Timon and Pumbaa, it would just straight up being a movie about somebody's dad getting murdered and then going back to kill their uncle. So without Timon and Pumbaa singing Akuna Matata, that's really all The Lion King is. And I know they put out Lion King One and a Half, which tells The Lion King story from their point of view. But when you see that movie, you almost realize that having too much Timon and Pumbaa isn't really what you want. It's like too much of the comedy zany part that you realize they're almost more impactful to have less of them. Another example is the minions in the first Despicable Me movie because they're kind of the breakout star of the Despicable Me movies. Like they're the face of those movies. But really in those movies, they're just in the background. They're just doing weird things <laughs> that make us laugh when we see the movie. But when they came out with the actual Minions movie, it was kind of like eating a bowl of Lucky Charms with all marshmallows. You think that's what you want, but when you eat it, it's like, oh man, this is so much sugar. And this is so hard to eat. Like, it's too much sweet to just watch the Minions. 
Don't get me wrong. While they are funny and cute and say ridiculous things that make us laugh, having a movie entirely about the minions was a bit like jumping the shark. So there you go. There's a look into some iconic movie characters and the actual time they actually appear on screen. I did mention the Joker in that list, and I do want to talk about him more because there may be a possibility for a Joker sequel with Joaquin Phoenix and... I want to look at that deal and also talk about who had the best Joker laugh. So we'll do that next. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, so I want to take a minute and talk about the Joker because I saw last week that it's reported that Joaquin Phoenix has been offered $50 million to make not one, but two sequels to the Joker. Now, what's surprising to me is that they haven't really announced that they're making a sequel and they still have to get a bunch of people on board. So not only do they want Joaquin Phoenix, they want the director, Todd Phillips, and the producer, Bradley Cooper, yes, the Bradley Cooper, to all be a part of the sequels, to have the same team aboard and kind of have the same impact that the first one did. Because if you take away any of those players in this you might not get the same result now i don't think this movie needs a sequel but if it came out i would watch it because i just love the first one how it kind of exists as its own little piece and slice into the joker like that's it that's all you need in this movie that's all you need to kind of discover they kind of lend themselves to different ways they could go and they could connect them with the other DC movies. But I just think this one should stand alone. Like, don't mess with something that was so great. And one of my favorite movies of last year. Like, the, my favorite movie of last year was this. And I think it's because Joaquin Phoenix had an entire movie to develop the character. So you see him go from being this odd, strange character to diving into full insanity. And straight up being out of his mind. Now... I liked his performance more than I did Heath Ledger. Now, I don't argue with the fact of how iconic that role was and how important that was to changing the way comic book movies are made. But like I was talking about earlier, he is only in 33 minutes of that movie. He's not the main character in that. If we had an entire Heath Ledger movie, now that would be insane. 
So I, even with this offer of him getting tons of money, which $50 million is a lot to do two movies. I'd say the top A-list actors make about $20 million per movie. So this would be on the higher end of the pay scale. And if they're offering him $50 million, there's no doubt that they would offer him more if he declined it. But I also don't think that the director, Todd Phillips, is even open to doing more. He was like, you know what? We did the one. I don't really see this developing into a whole franchise. But in Hollywood, you get one hit movie and they want a million hit movies. So... I don't think this is a franchise that should be milked out for all that it's worth. I think you keep it at one, but I just think there's just so much money to be made and you can't not toy with that fact because they only spent 60 million and ended up making a billion. So there's a pretty good margin to make some more money. And I know we could argue on here for a long time of who had the best Joker performance. And that's not what I want to talk about today. I just want to talk about who had the best Joker laugh. And that's kind of the thing the Joker is known for. His crazy, over-the-top wardrobe, but it's really that laugh that kind of gets you. And if the actor can do it perfectly well, it's bone-chilling. So for this list, I threw the question up on Twitter and asked just who has the best Joker laugh, and I pulled the four biggest actors who have portrayed the Joker on the big screen. So before we get to the results, let's just see our nominees in this category. Coming up, from the movie The Joker, you have Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> and now the second choice considered here, you have Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight as The Joker. <laughs> and then, because you thought he was going to be a bigger deal than he actually was in a movie that ended up being kind of bad, gotta throw in Jared Leto in The Suicide Squad. <laughs> Then you got the OG Jack Nicholson back in the original Batman, and here's his memorable laugh. <laughs> so I put that question up, I tallied up the votes, and I was a bit surprised. I kind of had an idea who you guys would rank as number one. I just didn't know he was going to win by this much. But coming in in last place at number four with only 6% of the vote was Jared Leto. Which when they made Jared Leto's Joker costume and his look for this movie, they kind of went totally different. Like they wanted him to be kind of, I guess, an alternative looking Joker or just something that was so kind of more comic booky and weird. I just don't think people liked it with like all the tattooed ha-has and the grill. Like I just don't think it really worked. And he was also only in the movie for a very brief amount of time, really added nothing to it. But I thought he did have at least a cool laugh. But yeah, came in at fourth place. Then coming in at third was Joaquin Phoenix from The Joker. Now, I really liked Joaquin Phoenix's laugh in this. I just thought it was so maniacal. And you got this feeling of him having like real serious mental problems that weren't funny. And also what I loved about it is how he could turn it off and turn it on. So there's that scene where he's like walking out and he's laughing like crazy. But then he just immediately jumps back into being normal and buttoning up his shirt. But that was only enough to get him third place. Coming in at number two was Jack Nicholson from the original Batman. Now, it's kind of weird to go back and watch Jack Nicholson because while he does do a really great job as the Joker and he kind of laid the groundwork for everybody else, he like set the bar for the Joker. It's still very much Jack Nicholson and hearing him laugh 
almost has a more comedic feel than it does the other Jokers. It's less serious and creepy, but iconic nonetheless. And then coming in at number one with a surprising 61% of the entire vote. So Jack Nicholson had 20, but straight up sweeping the poll was Heath Ledger. Now, not only did Heath Ledger get down the laugh perfectly, I thought, it's more so the mannerisms and the weird lip smacks and all those kind of things that he added to the character is why I think it was just such a powerful and memorable performance. Like, he really made the Joker a presence and a kind of larger-than-life character to where you forget that this is somebody acting and portraying somebody on screen. You just think that in some world, this person exists. So that's how you guys voted. You think Heath Ledger has the best Joker laugh? And I know there have been other people who have played the Joker in other kind of variations, but I just thought those were like the core four. Maybe 10 years down the line, we'll have an entirely different Joker to add to the list. But there you go. All right, now I want to talk about the brand new Netflix movie, The Devil All the Time. I was excited to see this one. I didn't want to know a whole lot about the plot going into it because I kind of wanted to be surprised, and I was. So I knew it was going to be a darker side of Tom Holland. I wanted to see Robert Pattinson in it, and there's a lot of cool things that happened in this movie. Also, a lot of disturbing things that happen in this movie, so I'll get into my spoiler-free review. But first, here's just a little bit of The Devil All the Time. You got time for a sinner. You know, I studied something. It's called the delusion. A belief that is untrue. It is our delusion that lead us to sin. <laughs> Delusions! So there's a lot to unpack on this movie. So let's just start with the cast. First of all, you have Tom Holland, who is really just known right now for playing Spider-Man. And I thought the main thing for me watching this movie was going to be, can I see him as anything other than that? Because in Spider-Man, the reason he works so well is because he had a fresh take on it to where he's like excited to be a part of the Avengers. He's very much a teenager and like everything's brand new to him he has that kind of bubbly kid-like personality that i think works for spider-man but it's also like could that translate into other deeper darker roles which i'll get into later of how he did in this one but that was the main thing i was looking for in this one and then you have robert pattinson who is quietly becoming one of my favorite actors right now because all the recent movies he's been in that are these more dramatic roles i've really just Wanted to see to see how he takes them on. And I'm rarely disappointed with the Robert Pattinson performance. I'm a little upset I haven't been able to see Tenant. I want to see that. But everything I've seen him in, it's like, okay, like he's actually a really great actor with a very great range that I don't think he gets enough credit for. And I think it's still that people hold him to being Edward from Twilight, which I think he's way far from that. Like the first Twilight came out in 2008. He's moved on so much more from there. That I think he really deserves a lot of credit. So you got him in here. You also have Bill Skarsgård, who maybe you might not recognize his face. And I didn't really put it together at the very beginning either. And once I looked it up, I was like, oh, wait, that's where I know him from. He plays Pennywise the Clown in the It movies, and which is such a crazy role to play. And seeing him be a normal person was pretty cool in this, too, because he's known for kind of having those crazy, sick, like, facial features that goes along with it. And... I can only imagine the depths of your brain you have to go into play a character like that. It was cool to have him in just a normal role. I say normal, even though he does some pretty crazy things in this movie, too. 
And then you also have Sebastian Stan, who plays Bucky in the Captain America and the Avengers movies. So basically, in this movie, you have the new Batman, Spider-Man, and Bucky from the Avengers all together in one. But they are playing totally different characters outside of anything you've ever seen them in before. I really liked Sebastian Stan's character in this movie. So let's talk about what the movie was about. So it's set in like a small town in like southern Ohio or like West Virginia. It kind of starts off with this. And it really just follows these kind of bizarre characters and how all their stories kind of intertwine. And what I was interested in the beginning is it starts with like 30 minutes of a totally different story as Tom Holland is a kid and mainly follows the story of his dad, who is a soldier in World War II. And then the movie moves into the 60s. But it starts out with him getting out of the army and then going on to start a family. And that's kind of where all the kind of crazy, sad stuff happens. So it's really a movie about all of the characters trying to protect their loved ones. And there's this balance of good and evil and this, you know, this kind of line of religion throughout the entire movie intertwined with a bunch of murder and death and all these really sad things. So there's a lot to unpack on this one. It's very dark. And I got to admit that. By the title of the movie, I thought there was going to be some kind of like horror element to it. I thought maybe there'd be like some possession or some kind of demons just from the title of it. But it's really people battling these evil forces inside of them. And like I said, they're trying to protect the people in their life, but they're having to do it with realizing what is a good thing and what is a bad thing when it comes to protecting those around you. Like, Tom Holland's character saw some crazy things and experienced some very crazy trauma as a child in this movie. And that kind of sets up the entire movie of how he is and how he reacts to his loved ones and protecting those people around him. He becomes traumatized by what happens to his dad and also by all costs is going to do what he can to protect his family here. And what I liked about Tom Holland's character is this. He has to fight this line of he's seen as the good guy in this movie but he does some things that are kind of questionable like you wouldn't see him really as like your typical good guy but you're still rooting for him throughout the entire movie so I don't want to give away all the plot points because I think it really kind of comes together and it's kind of a more of a mystery than anything to watch so giving away specific plot points through the movie I think would ruin it for you but I just want to talk about some of the themes that throughout the movie that it kind of tackled in a unique way and I saw a lot of people kind of saying that this movie was a little bit of Oscar bait, but I didn't really get that from from the movie. Like, I know you have like this really stacked cast and they're doing like maybe really high level performances, but there was nothing about this that felt forced or like they were just going after like, OK, we're going to make a movie and get it automatically nominated for an Oscar. I don't think that's what they were going for here. I think it's more so the themes they decided to tackle which will stand apart from any other movie that it may be up against if it does get nominated because it tackles religion, sex, and death, and that how all of those go back to good and evil. So it's a really unique story that I wasn't expecting. It was also very hard to watch. There's some moments where it's like, oh, this is kind of making my stomach turn a little bit, and there's also a lot of anticipation and dread and just worrying about what's going to happen next. But there's some tough images there, and it's not... Like I said, not necessarily a horror movie, but very violent, very kind of dark imagery and dark performances. 
But in that, it was also just refreshing to see something like this right now. It's also a little bit of a time commitment at over two hours, which I thought ended up being fine. I actually think this one needs that amount of time to take kind of course throughout the entire movie. Um, it does start out a little slow, like I said. Like those first 30 minutes are kind of just building the story of what comes to fruition later in the movie. But I thought that was important. I wouldn't have taken that out. Um, the thing that did kind of stand out was Robert Pattinson's performance because he plays a preacher in the movie who comes to town and he has a southern accent. So Robert Pattinson's a British actor, if you didn't know. And in this movie, he speaks with the southern drawl. I actually saw that Robert Pattinson didn't reveal like his southern accent to the director until he was actually on set and performing a scene. Like That's when he decided to show them what he had come up with because they wanted him to take like speech lessons and find a way to get a Southern accent that worked in the movie. But he was like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do this on my own and kind of figure it out. And when they heard his voice on set was the first time they heard it. And it's what they ended up using in the movie. It was a little weird, a little distracting at times. And I saw some people commenting about it online as well. So I think in the end it works because he's a great actor, but maybe he could have dialed it in a little bit more. But here's an example of him speaking in the movie in a southern accent. I was going to take care of everything. I ain't going to take the blame. It would ruin me, man. You can understand that, can't you? Yeah. So an interesting take on that, to say the least. But overall, I ended up really liking this movie, even though at times it was hard to watch. There was just so much to be said about watching someone go through despair and watching someone suffer loss and having all those themes come together and make you question things and how this movie was put together and pieced together like a mystery that you're wanting to follow along and figure out how is this all going to end how is this going to come together like what is the goal here I thought it was satisfying when it came to the end so that was really important because there was so much buildup and so much kind of different layers to this movie that if it didn't pay off in the end, I would be like, this was terrible. But it really kind of played that line. And I think my biggest takeaway from everything about this movie was that Tom Holland has it as being a really great dramatic actor. Like, at no point was I questioning whether or not like he could do the dramatic stuff, even like the the fight scenes and the more violent stuff. Like I was rooting for him and I wanted to see more of him in this kind of role. So I hope he kind of still, you know, sticks around with the Marvel universe and plays Spider-Man throughout how many movies they want to make with that. But I think it would be easy for him to hop into doing more dramatic roles on the side and coming out with more movies like this. Like I would watch them more often. And my other takeaway was, yeah, I think Robert Pattinson is becoming one of my go-to actors to where, I will probably watch any movie that he puts out right now. Like, I'm so kind of zoned in on what he's doing. And I find him so interesting and compelling on screen that I'm going to kind of commit myself to considering putting him in, like, my top five actors of the last 10 years. And maybe I'll work on that list because I just think he's up there. I think he has the chops to take on different roles like this. And, you know, he hasn't really done, like, a big major Hollywood blockbuster like a Twilight again, but he doesn't really need to anymore. He can kind of dive into playing these more unique characters. So all in all, I would give it four out of five crucifixes. 
you do have to prepare yourself a little bit of, you know, expecting to see some dark images. It's a little dark and twisted and heavy. So if you're not ready for that kind of movie, maybe not the one for you. But if you're into like mystery, suspense and a little bit of horror, I think you'll actually enjoy this movie. All right, and that's the episode for this week. But before I hop out of here, I got to give my shout out. I do it every single week to one of you guys listening who tweets me or sends me a message on Instagram. So that's all you have to do. Or you can tag me in your Instagram story, a screenshot of you listening to this week's episode or any episode for that matter. I'll repost those and then pick somebody to shout out each week. But this week, I got a shout out to Andrew Mullen. He's at AWM underscore 17 on Twitter. And Andrew, I just see you over there all the time tweeting and replying, interacting with the podcast and listening every single Monday. I think one of the longest listeners of this podcast. So I really appreciate that. Thanks, Andrew. Just wanted to give you a shout out here. Again, if you find yourself bored and looking for something else to listen to, we actually have a bunch of podcasts here on the Nashville Podcast Network that you can go check out and listen to. And we actually just launched a brand new podcast called Too Much to Say with Kaylee Shore. The first episode is available now wherever you're listening to this. Just search Too Much to Say with Kaylee Shore. She's somebody who I've followed on Twitter for a while now. Just one of my favorite people to follow because she's just so funny. Always has a unique take on things. She's also a country artist. And we're really excited to have her part of the network. So go check out her latest episode. Show her some love over there and subscribe to that as well. Hope you guys have a good week. I will talk to you guys next time here. And until then, later. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.